Second Kings. Let's look at the Bible tonight. And as we study the book of Second Kings and go into the book of Second Kings, turn to chapter eight and verse one. Second Kings chapter eight, verse one. And the book of Second Kings is after First Kings, exactly. <laughs> okay, let's look at Second Kings chapter eight. Look what the Lord, the Lord has for us here tonight. It says, "Then spake Eli Elijah unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go thou and thine household and sojourn with." Whithsoever thou canst sojourn, for the Lord had had, had called for famine, uh, and, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the men of God, and she went with her household and sojourned to the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the end of the seven years that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king called unto, uh, to, uh, and the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the men of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elijah had done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold a woman whose son he had restored to life, cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, unto, said My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is the, her son, whom Elijah restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the fruit of the field, since the day that she left the land until now. Shall we pray, Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. It's amazing, Lord, how your providential hand is, at, is in control of things, Lord, and how you restore everything to this woman here. It is amazing, Lord, that this man is talking about what happened to this woman and her son, and she is coming in the room as he was speaking. It is amazing, Lord, how things happen. Lord, it's not by accident, it's by your providential care. I just pray, Father, give us a good study tonight. May we take home something tonight we can apply to our lives. And Lord, I pray if there's someone online tonight that never received Jesus as personal Savior, may tonight, Lord, they consider Jesus. May they ask forgiveness of their sin, Lord, and ask you to save them, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to see reaping the harvest of sin. And we just a little, we're going to look at chapter 8. I just read a little bit. Uh, but chapter 8 in here, for the sake of introduction here, we see this is a good passage of Scripture. So, um, it was a friend of Job, one of the friends of Job, uh, when he went to visit Job, uh, he said this, state, this statement to him. He said, even as I have seen, uh, they had plot iniquity and so wickedness reap the same. So Solomon repeat this same truth. In Proverbs 22, 8, when he says, He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his anger shall fail. And the prophet Hosea elaborates also in the same truth. He says, Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, says these words, For they had sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind, and had not stalk, 
but uh, I'm sorry, but uh, but shall yield no no uh, meal. If so, be ye yield the trans the stranger sh uh, shall swallow it up. So the Bible is clear on the subject of blessings and reaping consequences of all of our choices. Now, some people don't believe that we have the power to choose. That we are robots, so to speak, or you know, every little aspect of our lives, every minute, every step that we take is all controlled by God. So we have no saying. Well, I do not believe that. I know the Bible does not teach such a thing, but some people come, you know, and get these verses to try to accommodate what they, they will claim to believe to be true. No. If we have common sense, right, even common sense says to us, I do make choices every day, all the time. I make choice to eat, not to eat, right? Uh, that's a choice that I make. I mean, a meal can come on the table, and I can let the meal still stay there, or the meal, or I eat, I eat what's in there. You know, I can choose to speak or be quiet. I can choose to smile or to stay sober. It's, it's all choices that we make. We can choose to come to church or stay home. Imagine that. If we had no, if we had no power of choice, every Christian would be in church tonight. Right? If we had the power of choice, every Christian would be in church tonight because that's what God wants them to be. There will be no, will be no excuse to say, oh, this and that. And the, God says, you go to church tonight, and that's what I want you to do, and put you in church. <laughs> but that's not what happens. You see, the silliness of saying that we have no choices. Listen, we make choices every day. We either reap blessings or consequences. That's, the Bible is very clear about that. So, no, it was not, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Moses, and who was the other one? Uh, no. Joshua. Was not Joshua that said to the children of Israel, Choose ye this day whom shall ye, ye, ye serve? Kind of paraphrasing the, phrase, the verses there. You know, he said, you choose this day who you're going to serve. The gods of this land or Jehovah, the God of Israel. Was that a power of choice there? Absolutely. So, what we see here today, we're going to look in this, is uh, the Bible is clear on the subject of blessings and reaping, consequences of all of our choices. Choices are something that you that you and I do every day. We do make choices every day. From the moment you get out of bed to the moment you lay your head in the pillow, you make hundreds of choices. What type of choices have we made today? I made so many. Let us look at this from several points tonight. Okay? Number one, we see about this uh, title that I give you tonight, Reaping the, con the, the Harvest of Sin. Number one, that we see the, the greatest of our gods. From verse 1 to verse 8 in chapter, or 2 Kings chapter 8, the greatest of our God. Let me put it this way. Okay. All right. Let me ask you this. How long have you been saved? 53 years. How long have you been saved? Roughly. Three years? Huh? <laughs> 40, 40 years. Goodness. You know, so, <laughs> all these 40 years, all these 50 years, 
Can you say that God is good and great? You can, test, can you testify and say, like, God has done so much for me? So the greatest of our God, how God, our God is wonderful. Our God is great, merciful, compassion. You know, you see all the wickedness he sees every day because the Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Uh, he's watching the, the evil and the good. And you know what? He sees all this and his mercy, the Bible says, is new every morning. You know, because what the wickedness that he sees in this world, you know, even as I speak right now, you know how much wickedness is going on in our world? But our God, our God is great. You know, obviously this event right here, this passage I just read, verse 1 to verse 8, took a place before the healing of Naaman uh, uh, in First King, Kings 5, since the king wasn't likely to uh, welcome a leper, in, a leper into a, the palace and Gehazi was a leper. Remember that when he, 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 he so it was after this this scenario right here had to happen before that story. So the art of Second Kings there's a claim to follow strict chronology right here, and we're not even sure which, which king uh, which Gehazi was entertaining with stories about his master. Perhaps this event occurred early in the reign of King Jerome. Uh, we don't know. This account reminds us, of, but this account reminds us of the greatest of our God. The event to follow reveals the sin, uh, sinfulness of people, but this section gives us a reminder that our God is great and He will accomplish His purpose in spite of the sinfulness of people, great or sm and small. God has a purpose, God has a plan, and His plan keeps marching on. You say like, oh, you know, what about Jesus coming? You know what? Jesus will come in God's time. Right. He will. Regardless of what mankind does, He will come. Right. So letter A, if you follow in the outline, we see God controls nature. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. It said, And then spake Elijah, Elijah unto the woman whose son had restored to life, saying, Arise and go down thy House, uh, go in thy, house, in thy household, sojourn, whosoever thou castest, sojourn, for the Lord had called for famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. You see what, what, what happens right here? The Lord called for a famine, and the famine is going to last seven years. Who's going to control that? God. Who's going to cause the land not to produce anything? God. Who controls nature? God. Oh, only if we put this fertilizer and that fertilizer. Now when God's hands is in there. God often uses famines to chasten His people when they were disobedient and needed to remind them of their covenant obligations. Because remember, the Jewish people was a covenant people. This famine may have been the one mentioned in chapter 4, verse 38. The prophet warned this woman to escape the famine by joining uh, going to a land of the land of Philistines and become a new resident there. You know what? Elijah knew a famine was coming because God told him. Who controls the land? Who controls nature? God does. And God told Elijah, and Elijah told the woman, you need to leave. You need to leave the land because a great famine is coming. Knowing in advance uh, that this famine was coming, she was able to secure a temporary home and, in Felicia ahead of the others who would flee Israel. So now this famine came because the Lord called for it, and He would command it because it is, he, he is Lord of all, even over nature itself. 
the children of Israel broke the covenant with the Lord. So if it broke, and the Lord said, this is going to come. So, tonight, who controls nature? God controls nature. Does nature control itself? No, nature does exactly what God created nature to do. That's it. If God's people would pray and confess their sin right here, God would have delivered them. Second Chronicles 7.14 talks about that. When people ignore God's word, the Lord, uh, the Lord, um, the Lord can speak through creation and remind them uh, that who's in charge. Verse 1 tells us it is God who controls nature and the nature of our con- uh, and, and the nature does not control itself. Actually, look what it says in verse 1. The Lord had called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. Now, I have two verses here in the New Testament and shows the, our Emmanuel. Who's our Emmanuel? Jesus. Showing power over nature. I'm going to give you two verses. There's more verses, but I'll give you two. Go to Mark chapter 4, verse 39. Go to Mark chapter 4, verse 39. We see here who's in control of nature. Literally. Not nature controlling itself is who controls nature. You know, and, and, and the Lord is here, is, is in, in a human form right here. Okay, and look what he says in, in chapter, Mark chapter 4, verse 29. And he arose, who? Jesus. And rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the Bible says, And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. All right. Nature. God. The Creator spoke to nature, and nature stopped. Does anybody that you know can say that or can do that? No. Jesus spoke, and nature obeyed. It's not Mother Nature, it's Father God. That's what it is. And these people out there, humanism, and they know those atheists out there, oh, Mother Nature, Mother. No, 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 there's not Mother Nature. It's a Father God who controls all. And right there in that passage shows uh, that God is in total control of nature. Nature obeys God. John chapter 6, verse 19. I'm going to, this is the next verse. There's many other verses, but I'm just going to give you these two. It says there, so when they had Round about 5 and 20 and 30 furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing night unto the ship, and they were afraid. You see, actually, other passage of the Bible, I think in Matthew or in Luke, says that he walked into the deepest part of the sea. Okay. Do you know anybody that can walk on water? Well, Peter walked on water, but uh, that was because I got allowed to walk on water. He took his eyes off the Lord. He sent, you know, and he did cry for help. Lord, save me. He didn't tell the other guys in the boat, save me. He tell, asked the Lord, you know what? Is God again walking on water, showing us who's in control? God has control over nature because he created nature anyway. Nobody can walk on water, but God does. Let it be. God controls life and death. 
Look at verse 3. Or the, and we already knew these verses, but verse 3 to verse 5, we see that God controls life and death. For sure our God is the giver of life. Listen, if you don't believe that, just take a day off if you're working and just go look, go in the woods and go whatever, and go see, go see life. Life is everywhere in this planet. Everywhere in this planet. I mean, even two rocks, uh, plants come out. That's how much life is in this planet. But God is a giver of life. And if you don't believe me, like I said, just look around you. Planet Earth is full of life. From the peaks of the high mountains to the bottom of the deep, deepest sea, you find life. From plants and trees and all different types of animals, even from man himself, for sure our God is the giver of life. He created life. He is a giving God. But not only is the giver of life, but he is also the taker of life. He had the power to give life and he has the power to take it away. Well, go to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. You know, that's one, this is a very sobering verse because it reminds us, don't be greedy. You know, don't think that you want to build, you know, uh, steal from people and from this and that and do all kinds of dirty business because you know why? You're going to accumulate all kinds of treasures. You know what the Bible says in uh, Hebrews 9.27? It says, And it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. So, literally the Bible says right there, everybody have an appointment with their maker. It is appointed Everybody have a day with their maker. They, yeah, listen, as they, 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 if they want to believe that God exists or does not exist, if they want to deny God, if they know whatever they want, one day they will see God. Right. And they're, go, they're going to give an account of their lives. They have an appointment with their maker. There's a guy that works with me. He said, I want not to do it God, not do it church. And I, I couldn't control it. I said to him, I said, yep, that's okay what you're saying, but one day you're going to regret those words. He said, why? Because you're going to see him face to face. You're going to give an account of this very word you're speaking. I said, you're not, I told him, you're not offending me. You should have just think about what you're saying. You, I told him, you're mocking the very one that created you, give you life. Oh, you're trying to skim me. I said, no, I'm telling you the truth, actually. If you get scared, that's, you know. So I think that sometimes people think that, that when someone dies, it catches God by surprise. Like, I'm like, oh, somebody dies. Oh, what are we going to do? No. Not that can be further from the truth. God is very aware of those who die. Actually, no one dies and take God by surprise. No one. Everyone that dies have an appointment, have a day of departure. Now, the account of the miracles in the life of this uh, Shumanite woman uh, here in our passage reveals the awesome power of God. She had no children, and her husband was an old man. But as with Abraham and Sarah, the Lord gave them both new lives, uh, and the woman conceived the son. But at, at, a, at a time when... When, as time went on and her child grows older, he was struck with, the, uh, uh, with illness and died. Yet the Lord raised him from the dead. So we can see here from this passage, actually 
Gehazi is the one who's telling the story, but we know if we go back on the book of First Kings, we know this story to be true because it happened. You know what? But we can see here that God has the power to take life and give it back. Then Jesus did the same thing to Lazarus in the New Testament. He'd been dead for three days, and the sister said, I said, Lord, he smells already. You mean you have a dead corpse for three days? Of course it's going to smell. She was realistic. She knew what it was, what that was true. And Jesus said, I am what? The resurrection and the life. What a great verse. And here we see the same thing, that God has power over death. He can restore life. Can anybody in this world restore life? No. But God can. In this verse you see a young man who dies, but he also, so we see the power of God who restores back, life back again. So let us see, we see God's providential provision. And now look at verse 5 and verse 6. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king, and how he restored the dead body to life, that behold the woman whose son he had restored to life, cried to the king for her household, her household, her house, and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son. Can you imagine that? Whom Elijah restored to life. It was not Elijah that restored to life, it was God. But God worked through Elijah. Okay, there are, there are a time in our lives on which things go out of control, isn't it? There, there are events in our lives on which we cannot control sometimes. There are times in which things go in a way that we don't want them to go. And the bottom line is that we don't know how to fix them. Ever been there? We don't know how to go about them. We don't know how to do them or how to fix it. But to our own amazement, we see the land, the hand of the Lord working them out for our good. Ever happened to you? We see things impossible. We talk, talk, what are we going to do? What can we do? And we we clueless about what we're going to do. And the Lord fixed the things up. You know, only those who are spiritual, those who are Christians and believe in God, see the hand of the Lord. Because these people in this world, they don't see it. But we see it. It's like, well, God is so good. How many times you go to sleep and you're full of trouble, the next day you woke up and God gave you peace? Have been there? And you say, Lord, how did you fix me? <laughs> how did you fix me, Lord? I put you to sleep, child. <laughs> you needed some rest. So this woman is coming back to her land only to realize that her land is now in the hands of somebody else. Overwhelmingly, she doesn't know what to do. Then she decided to go see the king. And imagine at the right moment, Gehazi was describing this wonderful resurrection that happened in the life of this very woman and her son. And as he's describing to the king, guess who walks in the door? And Gehazi said, this is the woman, that's her son. Was that God working? The king was so impressed, he decided to just restore everything back to this woman. God is good. The providential hand of the Lord. God, the Lord works, works things up for us. And we have to see it. Now she walked in at the right time and Gehazi spoke at the right time. God is good. I tell you, how many times we saw the providence, providential hand of God working in our church. How many times we've seen working in our own lives. We sometimes don't know what to do and how to go about only to find out that God was working behind the scenes in our behalf. All right. 
our lease was up. Right? I asked, let's pray about this. I believe many people have prayed about this. I was not worried, but I was concerned. Okay? I was not worried, but I was concerned. I don't worry. I'm concerned. I get, I get concerned. <laughs> you know, you just got, I was concerned. You know? But we pray about it and give it to the Lord. And, you know, did the Lord work it out? Yes, he did. Not the way we want him, but he worked it out. Because I thought, really, I thought it was going to be two times more than. <laughs> and in the end, we said, praise the Lord, it was good. Let me put it this way. Okay, they raised our rent $500 in five years. It's like, it was not like, okay, $500 now, and that's keep going. No, he gave us five years, $100 a year. Oh, first year, $200. And one. Isn't that a blessing? Sometimes we don't know how to fix it, but God knows. Folks, we do worship and serve a wonderful God. For sure, He loves us. For sure, He cares about us. And for sure, He has our best interest at hand. For sure, he is, uh, uh, he is for us, not against us. So our English word providence comes from two Latin words, pro and video, which means, which means, uh, which together means to see ahead, to see before. So the Lord, uh, the Lord, and only and only knows what lies ahead, be, uh, because He is all knowing. He's already ahead of us. He plans what is what is to happen in the future, and He executes His plan perfectly. Perhaps it's better. Uh, uh, a better word is uh, uh, prearrangement. God knows. God works in the hearts of people. And God says, look, my children need this. Let me work in the heart of this person and that person. When the time comes, mm, they're ready. You follow? What God, that's what God does. God works in the hearts of people. We're not robots, folks. Don't misunderstand me here because I believe in the power of choice. In no way does God's providence interferes in our power of choice and our responsibility for the choices we make and, and their consequences. We are not robots. God didn't build us that way. We are people who are capable of making our own choices. For example, creation was made exactly the way God planted by the very little detail. The plan of salvation was planted exactly the way God planted. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ for His church is planted according with the way God has planted. And many events in the world will lean towards the coming of Jesus exactly the way God has described in His Word. Many events in our lives are planned by the Lord. But do not confuse God's providence, okay, with the power uh, that we have to choose. All right? God's providence in Him is one thing, and the power of our choices is another. So don't confuse that. Get this. It was the Lord Himself who created us, and He created us perfectly with the power to choose. We see the greatness of our God. Number two, we see the wickedness, the wickedness of the human heart. The wickedness of the human heart. As we move down towards these verses, the Lord allows us to see that the human heart is desperately wicked. You know what? I'll put it this way. Praise the Lord for salvation. Praise the Lord for Jesus because we really deserve hell. <laughs> All of us. You know, I don't get people say, oh, I am a good person. No, you're not. Oh, I am such a good Listen, compare to whom? When we say I'm a good person, to whom I'm comparing myself to? Obviously, I'm not comparing myself to God's because He's holy and perfect. 
I'm comparing to people that is lower than me. Oh, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm a good person compared to you. But that's what we do as humans. We look up to God. Am I that good? So the Lord gives Elijah the opportunity to read the mind of another person here. And he sees what's really going on inside this man's mind. The man responds back in the night when Elijah tells him, we're going to read about this, uh, what he will do in the future. He responds back to Elijah with these words, am I a dog? But the truth about this man's heart is the same for all of us. We are all capable of doing the unthinkable thing. Uh, actually, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, let's look at this. Elijah's mi mission. Look what it says in verse 7 so you can understand what I'm saying here. And Elijah came to Damascus and Benadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God uh, is come hither. And the king said unto Haziel, Take a present in thy hand, and go and meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Hazel went to meet him, and took a present with him, even of a very good thing of Damascus, forty camel burdens and, uh, burden, and came and stood before him, and said, Thy son Benadad, king of Syria, had sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elijah said unto him, Go and say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord had shown me that he shall surely die. So what he's saying right here, yes, he's going to recover from the disease, but he's going to die of something else. Okay? It took courage, to be honest with you, for Elijah to travel to Damascus. After all he had done towards the, the, the Syrian uh, when they invaded the borders of Israel. Remember what he did? He humiliated the soldiers by feeding them and sending them back with his uh, full stomachs and empty hands. So because Elijah and the Syrian army fled from Samaria and the Jewish people were able to, to lot their camp, but Elijah also led of the healing of Nahum and the, the Syrian of leprosy. Remember that? In chapter 5, uh, we, uh, we study about that. When Elijah brought the Syrian uh, riding uh, party to Samaria. He showed them the mercy and saved their lives. The fact that Benadad, king of Assyria, was very ill and wanted help from the Lord made Elijah arrival more significant. This was a pagan Gentile king, okay, seeking, to help, seeking the help of the prophet of Jehovah. But perhaps the conversation with Nahum has something to do with it right here. We don't know. So listen, please. We may not think... Uh, this uh, way many times, but the truth is that our influence in the lives of many unsaved people can play a key role on which they can come to know the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior. Did Naaman went back to Syria and talk about the greatness of the Lord in the land of Israel because he was full of, he, he was a leper and he was cured? Probably did. Did this king heard about it? Probably have. Why in the world he goes and he's ill and he's seeking the same man, the same prophet on which that Nahum went to? Obviously he heard. We just put in two and two together right here. You know what? It is amazing. We Christians can have a big influence among those who are not Christians. We can. In a workplace, in our neighborhoods, wherever we go, we can have a tremendous influence in the lives of people.
We can. We can show them that, you know what? It's worthy being a Christian. It is worthy being a child of God. You know, God loves you as much as he loves me, and you, he can change your life the way he have changed my life. We can be a big influence in the lives of people. Listen to me. Those rock stars have influence in the life of people. Do they? What about movie stars? They, they do, right? They even walk around dressing like them. They tattoo themselves to look like them. They put their hairs into just to look like them. Why? Because they're influencing them. Does music influence people? Yes, it does. We say, oh, no. Yes, it does influence people. So we see the power of influence right here. Can a Christian influence a non-Christian? Yes, they can. Did Jesus influence people? Oh, yes, he had. He preached the word of God, and people were just glued to him. They wanted to hear more. They wanted to hear more. You know, that's what happened. You know, the power of influence. So sometimes we think that we're wasting our time with them. Sometimes we don't want to get closer to them. Sometimes we grow intolerant of them because of their way of life. I'm not saying that we have to live like they do in order to win them, but we can have a big impact and influence in their lives. We can. I'll give an example. Yesterday I had a, a funny phone call. I did. I was home, and I had a funny phone call. This man was asking, called and asking for food. Okay. I said, okay. Well, when you, your pantry will be open, it's Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Be there. You know, oh, I'm going to try to be there. And uh, <laughs> the power of influence. He goes, can I go there? And, and I don't want to listen about this blind faith. I said, okay. I'm trying to listen to this man. And uh, I don't want to try. I don't want to listen to this thing. I just want the food. And I said, sir, with all respect, uh, we're not a food bank. We are a church in which have a food pantry. Let me remind you something right here. Okay? Uh, I, can't, I can't do what you're saying because we are a church and I'm a pastor. We give food in Jesus' name. That's what we do. So if you walk there, yeah, you're going to hear about Jesus because the people there love to talk about Jesus. And he goes, oh, I said, well, that's what we do. You know, we put literature in the bag, and, and we tell you about Jesus, and we, we happily talk about Jesus. And you know what? Because that's who we are. We are Christians. And we will give you the food in the name of Jesus. Clunk. And God pardon me. <laughs> the power of influence. He didn't want to. Listen. But see, we can make a difference in people's lives. I mean, I didn't try to make them uncomfortable. But you know what? That's who I am. I'm a Christian child of God. If I'm going to give something, I'm going to give in the name of Jesus. Because if he just said, if you give a glass of water in my name, you give it unto me. So we give in Jesus' name. If you don't want in Jesus' name, then okay. I hope he shows up. <laughs> I was like surprised to hang up on me. I was like, okay. <laughs> so no. <laughs> Benadad sent Hazel uh, one of his high and official office to meet uh, Elijah and, and give him expensive gifts. The gifts were probably more than 
like, like bribes, and the kings was hoping that his generosity would move the heart of Elijah. But like his master, Elijah uh, refused those gifts. Get this. By calling, the king of, uh, by, uh, by calling the king of Syria your son, Hazel was seeking to add more of, uh, of, uh, to Elijah here. So after all, that he, that he finally asked the key question, would the king of Syria recover from his sickness? Elijah's reply appeared to be deliberate, a, a little ambiguous right here, for the Hebrew text can, can be read, you will uh, certainly recover, or you will certainly not recover. It's like, you know, the way the text goes, because Elijah knew exactly what was going to happen to him. The, the Lord revealed to him. So, in other words, the sickness was not terminal, but the king's life was about to be terminated. And as a high office of the king, Hazel wanted to give the king good news, so he didn't convey to, to him the second part of the message. So Elijah was not lying to Hazel's question here. His question was simply a yes and a no. No, the sickness would not kill him, but you will die of something else here. Let's look at this. Let it be we see Elijah's revelation from the Lord. We look at this at verse 11 and verse 13. And he settled his countenance steadfast until he was ashamed, and, and the men of God wept. And Hazel said, why weepest, my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel, their strongholds will thou set on fire, and their woman will thou slay with the sword, and will dash their children and rip up the woman with child. And Hazel said, But what? Is thy servant a dog that he shall do this great thing? And Elijah, Elijah answered, The Lord had shown me that thou shalt be king over Syria. See this? This amazing vision right here that God gave to Elijah here. The Lord allows Elijah to see the future actions of this man, Hazel, right here. Elijah started Hazel and, as though reading his mind and his heart, and then the prophet spoke and weeping. He knew what this man was going to do because God revealed to him. He was just too much for him to handle, and he began to cry. Imagine the Lord allowing Elijah to see what this man was going to do to God's people. The Lord shows Elijah some of the violence and the bloodshed that this man was going to cause. And he's, he doesn't hesitate to tell him that he was going to do what he was going to do in the future. Now, like any of us, would Hazel react to the news I, uh, uh, he received, how he reacted to the news he received from Elijah here? Here's our reply in the kid that he recognizes his own status in the government and wonder where he would get the authority to do this thing. Look at verse 13. He says, Hazel said, but what is thy servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing? He call it, in calling himself a dog, he wasn't referring to, to, a vicious, to his vicious nature. He's, in today's language, goes like this. Am I some kind of a dog that I would do these things? You know, he didn't see himself as a wicked man. He said, am I kind of dog? I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this stuff. You know what, folks? We would say the same thing. All of us would say, I would never do that. I would never do that. But again, the heart is desperately wicked. All of us have the, have potential, have the potential to do great evil. All of us. And this man right here says, I'm a dog. I'm not going to do this. What do you think I am? 
You see, this man was a nobody, a humble servant of, of the king, and without any such great authority. I said, how can I be, even, even do this? But Elijah's message to him was not over. Let's read the rest of the verse. Elijah's answer, verse 13, The Lord had shown me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So you see, many people wouldn't say that they would do, they would never, uh, they would never do such a thing. People say all kinds, uh, uh, say, uh, do all kinds of violent, uh, violence that they would never do, uh, think they would do. But the truth is that all of us are capable, like I said, of doing great things. We should never say never. We should say, thank you, Lord, for protecting me not to ever think in such a wicked way. Because all of us have potential to do those things. So get this. If the king would indeed die, this man, Hazel, would have all the authority he needed because he would become king of, of, of Syria. Even before Elijah announced, here's our great promotion, the, uh, great promotion, the prophet may have seen this man's heart to plan murder, to murder the king. Or, or just maybe the words of Elijah stir up his desire to murder the king. We don't know. Either way, Elijah wasn't, wasn't uh, blaming this guy here, but he knew what he was going to do. This man ex accepted the fact that he would be the next king, but he didn't ask how this would come about. Elijah made it clear that the king would die, but not because of illness. And this, he, uh, he told the truth, but the king would not die from the illness. But to make sure that the second half of the message was fulfilled, Hezekiah, you know, he wound up killing the king. He knew he was going to be king. He didn't die, like Elijah said, from disease. He died because this man killed him. He saw the opportunity. He sized the moment, and he killed the king to get power. Doesn't people do that today? Oh, yeah. Many people do that today. Hezekiah smothered him with a heavy wet cloth and sized the throne for himself. You see, so we see, number one, we see the greatness of our God, and number two, the wickedness of, human, of the human heart. And, of course, it's wickedness because you taking somebody's life to get into a position of power. And number three, you see the foolishness of compromise. One of the worst things that the, child, the children of Israel had done was compromise with the pagan nations around them. They compromised their way of life. They compromised their beliefs. They compromised their worship. Compromising in the worship of the Lord by worshiping other gods. Folks, we live in the same trying world with all types of different gods and different religions. And worst thing that a Christian can do is to compromise their beliefs with unbelievers. Let me tell you, I'm doing a study right now on world religions and cults, and we will teach that, teach that in Sunday school. I'll tell you what, it is amazing what people believe out there. The more you study, the more you amaze you. Are. Let me tell you this. You say, oh, Pastor, listen, the children of Israel compromised all that with the pagan people around them. You know what? We live in a world today that is full of people that could care less about God, could care less about what you believe, could care less about your church, could care less about missionaries, could care less about any, any of that. You know what? But we rub shoulders with them. You know, my, you know my advice to you? Do not compromise with them. I'm not saying go live in a shoebox. That's not what I'm saying. We do not compromise our beliefs, our way of life with them. Because when we compromise, we get contaminated. And we begin to make the wrong choices. 
Stay in a straight path. If somebody's going to compromise, let them compromise. Now ask compromise with them. You know, if they, comprom if they compromise with you, guess what happened? Their life's going to change for the better. If you compromise with them, you're going to go their ways. And you're going to find yourself in all kinds of trouble. You see, what happened to the children of Israel was this. They had a wonderful God who would take care of them and they began to compromise with everything. Why some Christians compromise their beliefs with unbelievers? Why? There are many different ways in which Christians do that. But let me give you a few. A lack of solid doctrine. Don't compromise your doctrine with uh, shallow doctrine out there. Don't compromise it. You know, it, it, you see the doctrine, like, no, you need to learn more. I tell you, listen, I am my brother in Christ. Yeah, I know he's, he's saved. I can tell he's saved. But I told him, I said, brother, you need, you need to string yourself in some doctrine. He looked at me and said, you think so? I said, yeah, I think so. You're very liberal in your doctrine. I wouldn't stand beside you like that. You have some ways that you dealing with the ways of God that's very, very worldly. But don't compromise your doctrine. Don't misunderstand Scripture. Trying to fit in with certain crowds of people. We compromise our ways of life. We compromise the way we live our life just to fit in with people. Listen, you want a piece of advice? Be who you are. And people would love you or hate you. You can't, listen, you cannot make people like you. The same way you don't like everybody, right? <laughs> you know, you talk with everybody, but you, know, you don't like everybody because some people have a heart to like, you know. But you know what, you cannot make people like you. But you know, be who you are in the Lord and people will love you or hate you. You know, you okay, but compromise with them for the sake of fitting in, you're making a big mistake. You're making a big mistake. You lower your standards, you lower your standards so you can fit in. Then in the end, gets you, you suffer the consequences you are. Don't lower your standards. Stand, live what you believe, have your standards, and live on those standards. Otherwise, who's going to reap the consequences is you. Don't you know sometimes when we hurt, it's hard to find a friend to console us? Everybody else is too busy. They don't want to hear it. To compromise is to make concession or accommodations for someone who does not agree with a certain set of standards of rules. There are times when compromise is good and right. For an example... Sometimes we need a compromise. For an example, Daniel and his three friends essentially work out a compromise with the Babylonian fishermen concerning their diet. Remember that? You know, they, it was a good thing. It was not a bad thing. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't hurt them. He said, we're not going to eat of the king's meat, but can we do this? And they negotiate back and forth, and they came to an agreement. You see, you... Compromise on certain things, but you don't compromise with your standards. You follow that? If you compromise your standards, then you're going to hurt yourself. 
In certain uh, other matters, compromise is good. The Bible makes it clear that God does not condone compromises as commands. For example, uh, for an example, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32 says, And he shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God had commanded you, and he shall, he shall not turn. The Bible says do not turn. So joyful are those who do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in the paths, uh, God, uh, uh, the paths of holiness and righteousness. You know, why am I going to compromise with evil? Why am I going to compromise with people that do evil continually? Why am I going to compromise with people that I know they don't have my best interest? They're going to hurt me in the long run. Don't compromise. God is holy and His ways are right. When people say to you, well, what's the use going to church? Instead of going like, yeah, I think you're right. I said, why don't you try? You know what you do and you stand on your standards. Because when they say that, they need to go to church themselves. They need to hear the word of God. You see, God is good and his ways are life. Concerning matters that God has clear address, we do not negotiate bargains or compromise with evil. We do not do that. King Jehoshaphat foolishly entered a compromising situation with the wicked King Ahab and it almost cost him his life. Second Chronicles 18. Jesus rebuked the church of Thyatira for their theological and moral compromise in Revelation 2.20. Look what it says. Now it's saying I have a few things against thee because thou, thou uh, suffered, su uh, suffers that the woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornications and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. You see the compromise right here? We do not compromise those things. There are certain lines that should never be crossed, and there are times when compromise becomes evil. As we go through this world, we will, uh, we will hear many calls to compromise. For example, compromise with the pleasures of sin, Hebrews 11.5. Compromise with deceptive philosophies. Don't compromise with this. Compromise with the loss of the flesh, the loss of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things we should never give in to. What makes a compromise so dangerous is the subtle way, the way it approaches us. Compromise, by definition, doesn't involve a, a wholesale uh, capitulation to worldly uh, ways or ideas. Rather, it accumulates them. Slowly, it comes to us. Most of us would recoil, recoil as the door of uh, tossing Jesus aside and embracing an idol. But compromise never asks us to do that. Compromise says that we can have the idol and keep Jesus too. Somebody says to you, oh, put Jesus aside. You say, oh, never, I never do that. You know, compromise does. Bring you Jesus and add this one on. Isn't that what the children of Israel did? They wanted, they wanted the Lord, but they wanted their idols. They compromise. Don't do that. Don't compromise with the world. That's why many people like to walk in the fence, in the middle of the fence. Today, eh? no, no. Choose one king to serve. Don't serve two. There's room on the shelf for one more object of worship, right? No, no, no. We worship the Lord and Him only. And what's the harm since he's still, we still have Jesus? Oh, it's harmful. Don't you know that, you know, we Christians, you know, if we, we come to church and do our duty, I said our duty, and go to the world and, and compromise with the world is going to be a great struggle, and we're going to make many mistakes. 
that if we put Jesus in our everyday life and don't compromise with the world, we would live in victory. See, we should never compromise our values. There are some examples of things by which we should not compromise. For an example, the essentials of the Christian faith, including the gospel. We do, should never compromise the gospel. Never. The faithful preaching of the word of God. We should never water down the word of God. We should never water down to, for the sake of making people feel good and not to offend people. You know, today, some preachers don't preach on certain issues so we don't offend people. What they're doing, they're compromising. We have to, to preach the whole counsel of God. Teach the whole counsel of God. That's what God calls every preacher to do. The Lordship and authority of Jesus. You know, He is our Emmanuel. He's our the Almighty God. He's the great I Am. Our own personal convictions. Do not compromise your convictions. You know, if you, if you go to a place and it bothers you, it convicts you, walk out of there. And if people say, what are you doing? I said, I'm sorry, I can't be there. You have your own personal convictions and you, you just live, live it out. Don't compromise that. Moral issues as defined in Scripture. We must be careful to live our biblical beliefs. We live in a world that tries to make us compromise with the world. Don't do that. I conclude with this tonight. From the moment... We get out of bed to the moment we lay our heads in a pillow. We make hundreds of choices. And one of them is compromising. We can compromise with everybody so we can fit in. Or we can uphold our standards and our own convictions. Listen. I'm not going to compromise my standards and, and begin to agree that a man should marry with a man and a woman should marry with a woman. That's compromising your own standards, your own beliefs. You see, you see that? Oh, I still have Jesus. Uh, that's, they do what they want to do. That's not my business. You, you follow that? That's going against what God says in his word. We can go on and you know, I can say, oh, it's okay. I mean, you know, if they commit abortion, it's not in my house. That's compromising. That's saying, well, it's okay. As long as you kill everybody, don't kill my family, it's fine. That's now it's wrong. You know, if everybody has right to life, let the innocent choose their, if they want to live too. Because they're human beings too. I mean, I'm every, every open-minded to that, right? If I'm going to hold my standards, let the innocent uh, defend themselves too. Let, let them make a choice. Hey, do you want to live or die? You know what they're going to say? I want to live. See, what type of choices we make every day? So what have we learned tonight? What we learned tonight? We learned that God is great, right? The greatness of Allah. God is great. God is a wonderful God. Our God is great. You can sing to Him. You can worship Him. You can, you can serve Him. You can live for Him because He is great. Like Tony the Tiger. Great. <laughs> he is great. God is great. He's a wonderful God. What we learn tonight, the foolishness or the wickedness of the human heart. So our God is great. The heart is desperately wicked. Okay? We're not good. People say we're so good. No, we're not. 
Well, all of us have the potential of doing evil. And number three, the foolishness of compromising. Don't compromise your standards. Don't try to, to load down your standards so you can fit in. Because in the long run, guess who's going to suffer? You are. Not them. Don't compromise. How many people, how many people compromise their standards, or compromise everything about so just to fit in with a little group of people? Listen, be like this. You either like me or don't like me. As long as God loves me, I'm fine. <laughs> as long as the Lord loves me, yeah, yeah, there's a place in heaven for me, forgives me of my sin, I'm fine. About people, hey, you want to like me, like me. You don't want to like me, don't like me. But I'm not going to lower my standards down in order for you to like me or maybe, maybe you would like me. Any questions tonight? You all good? Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for this passage of Scripture. Lord, indeed, Lord, we learn here that you are a great God, wonderful God. You do so many things in our lives, and we praise your name for it, Lord. How wonderful it is to come to the house of God and lift up our voices and sing songs, Lord, and praise your name, Lord, and hear the, the voices of God's people singing with us, Lord. It is a blessing, Lord. What a joy to be in the house of the Lord. Lord, what a wonderful... But also, Lord, help remind us, Lord, how wicked our hearts really are. We have the tendency to go in the ways of sin all the time and forgive us of that, Lord. And, Lord, help us never to compromise our doctrine. Help us not to compromise our standards of preaching, Lord, our music. Lord, help us not to compromise that, but, to, Lord, to look up to you always. And, Lord, then do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, not in the eyes of man. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.